Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. Before I continue, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. If you want to reach me, you can just email Craig at CanadaEHX.com. And you can also find me on Twitter, Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and on Instagram at Bairdo37, that's B-A-I-R-D-O-3-7. Don't forget, I have two other podcasts out there, Pucks and Cups and From John to Justin, available on all podcast platforms. And on May 2nd, I'm launching a brand new podcast called Canada's Great War, where I look at a chronological look from the beginning to the end of the First World War and its impact on Canada. So be sure to subscribe on all podcast platforms. And of course, if you really enjoy this podcast please remember to give a rating and review. It helps keep it moving up the rankings. Today I'm looking at the community of Altona, Manitoba, which is located about 100 kilometers southwest of Winnipeg. It's got a very interesting history and I'm going to dive right into it. And as usual, I won't do a chronological look at the history, but look at various aspects and stories from the community's history. So let's begin. The Indigenous Before Europeans arrived in the area that would be Manitoba, the landscape was dominated by the bison who moved in great herds. Following the bison were the indigenous who had arrived in the area thousands of years ago as the glaciers began to retreat. Closer to the time of Europeans, the indigenous groups that lived in the area were the Sioux and the Ashinanabe people. And as fur traders and explorers came to the area, a new group would emerge, the Métis. The Métis would have a long impact on the area, and they would hunt the bison in great hunts that lasted from the early 1800s to the 1870s, just as the new Mennonite pioneers were beginning to arrive. The indigenous did not interact much with the new Mennonite pioneers, and for the most part, they kept their distance, or stayed confined on the reserves that were popping up throughout Canada at this time. And today, Altona sits on Treaty 1 land. The Founding of the Community The first settlers to the area were three young Mennonites who had obtained entry for a quarter section of land each on February 24, 1880. The Mennonites were Abram and Jacob Rempel and their cousin, Jacob Warkington. 
The land they would settle was located just to the west of the future site of Altona, making them the first settlers in the area. By June 11th of that year, several more Mennonite families arrived in the area and filed homesteads, and nearly all of the new arrivals were related to the three men who first arrived. The original village would spring up, and it was established in the familiar Mennonite village pattern and open field system. As for why the name Altona was chosen, that actually is not clear. It could be that it was named for Altonau in Prussia, or Altonau in South Russia. The issue is that none of the original residents trace their lineage to either location, so the choice of the name is a mystery. The village of Altona was created in a similar manner to how villages were built in the homeland of the Mennonites, and it offered them the feeling of home despite being a world away. This included the construction of house barns, which were houses connected directly with the barn, and something completely unique in the entire area. As it turned out, the people who had settled there had chosen well because one year later, Jacob Braun sold a right-of-way to the Canadian Pacific Railway for $6.75, and this would be the start of the railway through the area, near the land the three men had originally bought. One year later, the railway came through and passenger service would start on December 10, 1882. The area would become known as Old Altona Village. The story of the railroad coming through shows that it was not a welcome addition to the community, but more for where it was going. According to local folklore, the CPR was planning to bisect Altona with a new branch line, and the residents made such a fuss over it that the CPR decided to adjust the line to just west of the village. One of the unique aspects of this early community was the creation of a fire insurance system that was common in Mennonite villages in Europe. If a fire occurred and someone lost their possessions, the losses would be tabulated for the villager who lost what they owned. In the system, each villager paid directly into it, and the person who lost their home and possessions would receive two-thirds of the value of the lost building and a fixed sum for the machinery or animals lost. They would also receive restitution for lost stores of grain and hay. One man was elected to serve as the manager of this unique insurance system. In 1884, a public school building would be established in the village, and the Altona School was publicly funded, but due to the high amount of Mennonites, it operated more like a Mennonite private school. German was the only language taught, and the teaching focused mostly on the Bible. Some math was taught, but geography and English was non-existent. But by the 1890s, with new residents arriving, more subjects were taught at the school. In 1895, as the rail line was built north of Old Altona Village, the new surveyed community of Altona would be built, and it is from there that the current community has grown. By July of 1896, this new Altona had three elevators, six general stores, three wood and machinery dealers, one blacksmith, a flax warehouse, a hotel and a school. The original Old Altona Village did not become part of this village, but its proximity did allow both communities to prosper. Why did this new town have the same name as the very nearby old town then? Well, that comes from Henry Ritz. It was on his property that a rail car was set up as a temporary station, and when officials asked him for a suggestion for the new town site, he said, quote, Why not call it Altona, after the Mennonite village to the south? End quote. As a result, another Altona was born. By 1900, Altona would have its first bank, a private one, followed by its first chartered bank, the Union Bank, in 1903. In 1906, the Bank of Montreal was operating in the community. 
By the 1920s, growth in the area was strong, with business booming and many seeing a bright future for Altona. Unfortunately, the Great Depression would bring a lull to that rapid growth, which continued to remain a hamlet throughout the next decade. In 1945, Altona was officially incorporated as a village after a petition of 150 signatures was collected. At the time, Altona had 1,065 residents. The population grew through the next decade, reaching 1,698 residents by 1956, and on October 24, 1956, Altona became a town. In the years between 1946 and 1956, the town would modernize in many ways, including with a new public works water system, new steel culverts, and the construction of 25,000 feet of concrete sidewalks to replace the wooden ones. By 1980, Old Altona and New Altona were still separate communities but had grown so close towards each other on the landscape that it was hard to tell where one ended and the other began. Today, Altona boasts 4,200 residents and is a commercial hub for the area. I'd like to take a break away from the episode for a second to talk about ExploreNet. I spent most of my life living in rural areas in Canada, and I remember the days of dial-up internet and spotty high-speed service. For the past three years, I have been a customer of ExploreNet, and I can honestly say that it is the best rural internet I have ever had. My job as a podcaster means I spend a lot of time researching online, interviewing people over Zoom, and uploading content. Through it all, ExploreNet has provided me with excellent service. When I'm not working, I enjoy streaming content on several streaming platforms, and even doing some online gaming with a friend in Ontario. ExploreNet allows me to do all of that with ease. Right now, they offer up to 50 megabits per second on their new LTE network with unlimited data. Their service has only become faster and better since I first signed on. Today and beyond, ExploreNet is investing in building and upgrading the network at a rapid pace. ExploreNet is rural, and that is their route, and that is their focus. For more information about rural internet options in your area, go to ExploreNet.com or call 1-866-285-2253. The Sunflower Capital of Canada Sunflowers have always been an important part of the history of Altona. The 1945 sunflower crop, for example, produced 3 million pounds of seed and 572,000 pounds of sunflower oil, and it took six weeks for the local plant to process everything. In 1954, blacksmith Fred Abel would report finding a sunflower plant that was 10 feet high and had 43 heads on the stalk. So it was in 1965 that the annual Sunflower Festival kicked off in Altona, honouring the community that has grown to become the sunflower capital of Canada. The area around Altona, the Red River Valley, is the largest producer of sunflowers in all of Canada. For the first Sunflower Festival, which was held from July 30th to 31st, 1965, there was a parade led by the Mayor of Winnipeg, as well as events such as nail hammering, sunflower seed eating, log sawing, fiddling, and tractor driving. A baseball tournament, swimming races, and an auction sale was also held. And for the final event of the festival, there was a grandstand show at the arena and the crowning of the first Miss Sunflower, Teresa Villeneuve. For the person who was chosen as the Sunflower Queen, they receive a trip to Australia to Emerald in Queensland, the sister city of Altona. 
The Sunflower Festival, which continues to operate to this day, was created for the purpose of promoting the commercial life of Altona, celebrating its agriculture and Mennonite heritage, and the history of the community itself. The Largest Painting on an Easel Without a doubt, the most recognizable feature of the community is the huge painting that depicts the famous sunflower painting by Vincent van Gogh. It was officially unveiled on October 17, 1998, and soon after it was registered as the largest painting on an easel by the Guinness Book of World Records. The painting stands at 76 feet high, comprised of 24 sheets of 3 quarter inch plywood, and the painting itself required 17 gallons of paint for the picture. In 2017, after almost 20 years standing in town and delighting everyone who came through, the painting was taken down and completely refurbished by the original artist Cameron Cross, and it was then put back on display, ready for another 20 years. A History of the Fires Fires were nothing new for the community of Altona. Throughout its history, fires had raged even as the volunteer fire department did their best to battle them. From 1895 to 1915, four fires hit the community, but the worst was on September 7, 1908, when an entire block was destroyed. The fire destroyed the Bank of Montreal, the D.W. Friesen store, the post office, a general store, and the commercial hotel. But that wasn't the only fire. It was a very hot day in the middle of the haying season on July 11, 1937. The temperature was so warm that by 10 a.m. the horses were put away for the day as the thermometer climbed above 40 degrees Celsius. It was on that day when the heat of the sun was replaced by the heat of a raging fire. The fire is believed to have been started at the Rhineland Consumers Co-op building when a gasoline engine burst into flames. The fire would destroy the entire building, taking most of the equipment inside. Added to the fire was the fact that the storage tanks full of fuel exploded, destroying much of the property. Eventually, everything had to be rebuilt at no small cost. The next terrible fire in the community's history came not in summer, but in winter. In November of 1946, cold temperatures gripped the area, but that didn't stop a fire from spreading in the downtown core. The fire destroyed the Ryland Car Dealership, Harry's Cafe, the Red and White Store, Merle's Dress Shop, and the A.D. Friesen's Insurance Office. But this would be the last of the great fires to hit the community. One story from that fire centers on a young minister who was told to run into a store and grab as many groceries as he could carry before the store burned down. The minister, who was not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination, did so and was able to fill two grocery bags. He then gave much of the food to the people around him. The Henry Taves Shooting One shocking incident from the town's early history came about in 1902 when Henry Taves, who was a teacher at the old Altona Village School, woke up on October 9th with several grievances against the households where he boarded in the community. And those grievances would have terrible results. On that day, he was meeting with school trustees, and when they arrived, he grabbed a revolver and shot the trustees, wounding three of them at the school. Then he walked into the classroom and shot one of his students, Susie Rempel, who was hit in the left arm and in the right wrist. He then shot Helena and Annie Kaler in the back and in the arm. And of the students hit, Annie was the only one to die. Villagers ran to the school, but he kept them at bay with his gun. 
And finally, when he was confronted by a friend, he raised the gun to himself and shot himself in the head. The shot did not kill him, and he would regain consciousness six days later, and he would remain at the hospital until January 19, 1903, when he died at the age of 37. The Burgerthaler Weiseamt Located in Altona, you will find a simple storefront structure that has a pretty long history in the community. Now serving as apartments, the Bergenthal Weisenamp building was constructed in 1916 and sits in the downtown core of Altona. The Bergenthaler Weisenamp was constructed as a mutual aid institution by the founding Mennonites to help widows and orphans both locally and abroad, and the society also helped locals during the Great Depression when money was tight. The building is built with concrete blocks and its fire-resistant construction ensured that it never succumbed to the fires over the course of the last 105 years. For a time, the building was home to the Mennonite Mutual Fire Insurance Society I had talked about earlier, and considering its fire-resistant construction, it was a good fit to have the business in that location. The Newburgh-Tall National Historic Site also located just southeast of Altona, there is a one-and-a-half-story dwelling with an attached barn that dates back to 1901, making it one of the oldest buildings in the entire area. The design that combines a house and a barn was often used by Mennonite immigrants when they settled in the area in the 1870s and 1880s. This partially restored structure was built for Bernard and Helena Ham, and was occupied by the Ham and then the Friesen families for nearly 90 years. The structure is found at Newburgtal, a traditional Mennonite farm village which is now a National Historic Site of Canada due to the large number of still intact Mennonite house barns. Also at the historic site, there is a herdsman house located on the southern edge of the historic site. This one-story dwelling was built in 1890 and is the only remaining dwelling of its type in the entire province. It served as an example of the facilities built for herd marshals and farm villages by Mennonite settlers in the 1880s. Another structure located at the historic site is the Ham House, which is a small wood and timber structure that was built somewhere around the 1880s. It was built by Johann and Anna Ham, and is an example of the Mennonite style of residence. The building is a basic design, but its history is very deep, and it serves as one of the oldest structures in the entire area. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at Altona, Manitoba, and if you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at canadaehx.com. You can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And don't forget, you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Randall McCallum, Diane Wade, Lorianne Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. 
You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-E-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.